When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey y'all, welcome back to Eco Chic. My name is Laura Diaz. It is so great to have you here today. I am so excited for you to listen to this episode because it was the first episode that I recorded in person in Los Angeles with my friend Christy Drutman. Christy is the founder of Brown Girl Green and the Green Jobs Board. So today we're talking all about diversity, equity, inclusion. We're talking about the green economy, how to get a green job. And I feel like this episode is the perfect mix of philosophies around big thinking about the green economy, and then also incredibly tangible take-home tips. Like Christy gives you step-by-step instructions on how to accomplish some of the things that we're talking about. Really fabulous episode, and I look forward to hearing your thoughts on it. Like always, if you enjoy this episode, share it with a friend, post it on your Instagram story, send it in the family group chat, and make sure that you're subscribed to EcoChic wherever you're listening right now. So that's Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. All of my social links are down below. So if you want any little shareable bits from this episode, there will be lots of videos. And also in the show notes, I will have Christy's social links to Brown Girl Green. And I will also have resources from the Green Jobs Board so you can check it out. With that, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Christy Drutman. I'm so glad that you're the first person that I'm sitting down to speak with for an in-person interview because I feel like I've known you and I've followed your platform for so long, but we've never truly sat down and gotten into everything. Good. I want to first start talking a little bit about content creation and your journey there. So I want to talk about Brown Girl Green from the start. Tell me a little bit about the inception and where you are today. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm so happy to also be doing this in person. Brown Girl Green started off also as a podcast, which is very timely for this conversation. And I really created Brown Girl Green my senior year of university because I felt like there wasn't great representation of people of color in the environmental space when it came to environmental storytelling. And I felt like with the urgency of needing climate solutions, there needed to be a space to voice my frustrations with the lack of diversity and inclusion in the movement. And so Basically, I created Brown Girl Green. I remember I was at university and I was just sitting at my favorite cafe um, in Berkeley and I literally had my like hand next to this like leaf wall. It was hand next to leaf and I was like, Brown Girl Green. Like that was it. I was like, oh, that's so simple but yet powerful. I'm a brown girl, brown woman who also cares about being green, cares about sustainability. And for me, that that whole ethos was like, how do we make diversity and inclusion, climate justice, climate action that simple, right? That's why it's just brown, girl, green. We keep it fresh. We keep it simple. We keep it direct. And that was how the content was. With it being started as a podcast, I was interviewing, you know, people who I just wanted to get guidance from because I was so frustrated about the lack of representation. So I was interviewing people that I thought could be my potential mentors, people that were specialized in diversity and inclusion in the space. And over time, it started catching on. People were getting excited excited about me just having those kinds of conversations and then it started to evolve into blogs Instagram posts, um, lifestyle content, and then video, where I was just exploring all these themes around, okay, let's talk about being sustainable, let's talk about climate change, but we also need to think about who's in the room of those decisions, of those conversations, and who's not, and how do we bridge that gap in our conversations and in our storytelling. So that was where Brown Girl Green emerged from. It was just years and years of climate activism witnessing the lack of effective climate communication and the lack of diversity and inclusion and wanting an outlet in a space because I didn't want to wait for mainstream media to catch up to what was going on. I was like, I'm not going to wait. Like I'm in it and I'm just going to build the thing myself. And, you know, it's been a five year journey and now we're here. And I, I know I met you very 
early on as in met you virtually on the internet very early on in that journey and you know it's so amazing how much this space has expanded as I'm sure you've witnessed as well and it's really inspiring that I got to be one of those you know earlier on people who you know helped create the space for environmental content creation as you were as well and it's just cool to see how it's evolved so I'm so happy to actually get to this point because it also feels like a milestone in environmental content creation period that you and I have these platforms and these spaces where we can have a conversation like this as environmental communications experts and that just shows you how much this space has evolved so I also commend you for how much you've grown in your content um, as well as myself and it's just yeah it's really dope to be with another woman of color who's just like killing it in this space so yeah Oh my God. Well, thank you so, so much, first of all, for all of those sweet sentiments. And thank you for walking me through such a timeline of Brown Girl Green. I like that it started from a selfish point, can I say? Like, yes, you created truly. Brown Girl Green selfishly because yes. you wanted mentors and you wanted more representation <laughs> yeah. in the space and you were looking for something. Yeah. And I feel like this is also a fascinating place that we can pivot a little bit to the Green Jobs Board, yeah. another platform that you began that while it's in a separate space, the recruitment space of green jobs, it's very adjacent to the other content that you already create and are so passionate about. So let's talk a little bit about the Green Jobs Board. What is the value in having content creation from a green jobs recruitment space? Yes. Oh, I love that question so much. I mean, let me walk it back. So Brown Girl Green, like I said, it started off as this platform that was focused on diversity and inclusion, accessibility, and thinking about, you know, how do we get more people into the room? As a natural organic extension of that, I was thinking back to how hard it was for me to find a job out of college. I remember like being so stressed out my senior year of university being like, how the heck am I going to get a job? And, you know, my mom is an, you know, immigrant mother from the Philippines. I didn't grow up in a family of activists. So everyone was like, uh, what are you going to do with your life after you graduate? Like, so great. You're so passionate. But like, uh, are you going to get a job? And I remember just like, being so panicked and I remember like having to like dig into all these different pockets and mentors and like having to bend over backwards just to find a job that like could pay decently and also like work for a values aligned organization and I was like why is this so complicated and I was someone who was like traveling you know, across the country doing environmental activism, like I was in it, you know what I mean? And even for me, it was like, I didn't even know how to get a job. So imagine like the average person who also is in those spaces who like studies this, cares about it, but then is like, okay, I graduated, now what? You know what I mean? So I just like to say that context because for me, when I'm thinking about equity gaps, the green economy was like where my brain started ticking. It was like, oh, maybe I should just like find jobs on the internet and start posting content about that. So I remember it was summer 2021 and I just started going on Google and finding green jobs. And I just started making these like silly graphics on like Canva and I had my like team make it where I'm I was just posting, like, these are jobs I found recently. People went nuts over it. I didn't expect that kind of response. And then it got to the point where organizations were like, is this a legit thing that you post green jobs, like, on Brown Girl Green? And I was like, uh, maybe? Like, I'm just making these posts once a week. Like, I didn't really think anyone would think much of it. And then it got to the point where organizations were like, why don't we, like, pay you to, like, post jobs with with us? I was like, what? This is crazy. It was just so organic, right? I started posting these random jobs and then companies and organizations were like, hey, like, can we be included in that? And I was like, whoa. So these are like real life companies reaching out and then people straight up messaging me that follow me who are like, hey, I just applied to that job, actually. So at first it was like, let me just share this with you all to then companies being like, hey, we want to be involved. So then people who follow me actually using it and then to someone finally telling me, hey, I got my first internship or job through your Instagram post. I was just shook. I was like, this is crazy. And it got to the point where people were like, oh, does it have its own website? Are you going to make this a bigger thing? It was all so organic. And I was like, no, like, this is just posts. So then I talked to, you know, who's now my co-founder and my best friend, Usman. And I was like, should we just, like, make this its own thing? And he's like, why don't we just soft launch it on Instagram? Like, make it its own Instagram account instead of just living on Brown Girl Green. And I was like, yeah, probably not going to get any followers, like whatever, like it's going to be whatever, but at least it's a place to house this content that was buzzing. We soft launched it about a year ago. It's almost our one year anniversary. And within the first week, we got 2000 followers. 
within like with no effort like people were going nuts over it and I was like whoa this is crazy and everyone was like oh my gosh like how many jobs are you posting where are you expanding to so then we started just like posting the jobs on that account and then now you know we're almost to 30,000 on Instagram we reached almost 30,000 on LinkedIn like we were like blowing up right over the past few months then it got to the point organically to where then we were like okay like these posts are doing well organizations and companies are using us more people are getting hired through us universities are starting to recommend us as a resource and I was like what this, this is crazy and then we're like should we make it a company? And then me and my like best friend slash co-founder and my team from Brown Girl Green, who all now moved over to Green Jobs, were like, yeah, let's make a company. Why not? And so as of November of last year, we are now officially a company, Green Jobs Board Inc. And it all started as an Instagram post. <laughs> and we now have thousands of people who follow us on the internet and we have hundreds of companies and organizations across the climate space using us and yeah we're just you know majority POC led company who just understands the equity gaps and I think what's really awesome about Green Jobs Board of you know people finding these jobs right like just so people have a visual if you go to our Instagram you'll scroll through and find these really beautifully visual accessible graphics of job listings right so we make sure there's transparency on the salary location remote or in person and this is all through crowdsource feedback so you'll see that on the feed then over time we started introducing things like job notes ways that people could actually engage from like a thought leadership perspective of like okay, you find this job, but like, how do you interview? How do you get your resume reviewed? Um, What are some career development tips? Because we really want to make sure the job board isn't just a job board. We want it to be a community and a conversation. So I just wanted to throw that in there as part of the journey of like what we've been building is we realize when it comes to equity gaps, one is A, providing the resource, which is the job board, but B and C, if, especially if you're a young person of color, you need the extra supplemental mentorship. And I think doing it through Instagram is such a quick and accessible way to do that. It's almost like you're giving, you know, quick on-demand mentorship and skill building. And I just think it's in a really incredible space to be in to use content in a way to be able to get people involved and excited to build careers on climate. So, yeah. That was a great, great overview of the timeline and the ethos that is the Green Jobs Board. Quick break. I am a coffee person. There are people who just like a cup of coffee. I love a cup of coffee. And it's even better when I know my purchases are supporting both the environment and small farmers. I found Peace Coffee a few months ago, and I have continued to repurchase it and recommend it to everyone in my circles. What first caught my eye was their really cute packaging, but what got me to stick around is their delicious tastes and their ethical sourcing. Peace Coffee buys their beans from co-ops, and they work hard to ensure that farmers are paid fairly. This means when you drink Peace Coffee, you're not just enjoying a great cup of coffee, but you're supporting small farming communities all over the world. One of my very favorite things about Peace Coffee that probably comes as no surprise is their commitment to sustainability. They are certified organic, and they are a B Corp certified company. In 2017, Peace Coffee started a program called the Climate Carbon and Coffee Initiative, where they invest 3% from each pound of unroasted beans they purchase to local initiatives to help farmers adapt to climate change. Now, I have to throw in for the coffee lovers amongst us, the taste of Peace Coffee is unmatched. One of my favorite blends right now is their seasonal blend, Pollinator. It's a light roast, really beautiful body, and it has notes of berry jam, honeysuckle, cacao nib. It is really the perfect way to start the day. It's a beautiful, beautiful cup of coffee. I also have to plug their steeped coffee. It's like a tea bag, but with coffee. I like to take this with me when I go traveling. If you follow me on Instagram, you know that I was just stuck in like a 24-hour situation with no bags, internationally traveling, and all I had on me were these pieced coffee steeped bags saved my life and it's a delicious really incredible way to enjoy coffee on the go you steep the bag in hot water and just let it sit and you get your coffee as bold as you would like it to be the bags are fully compostable and they only take a couple of minutes to make a really delicious cup of coffee on the go ready to try peace coffee for yourself visit peacecoffee.com and as a special treat for our eco chic listeners you can save on your order by using promo code eco chic 40 at checkout For 40% off plus free shipping. That's peacecoffee.com, promo code ECOCHIC40. Enjoy. 
Now, I have to imagine if you are building out a company in the recruitment space, specifically in the green job space, not only is there incredible opportunity in the green job space, but you also alluded to this. There's incredible inequity in the green economy. And I also have to imagine that with these companies reaching out to you and now with the platform that you've built, the green jobs board has gained some power in that conversation with the companies that are reaching out to you. So I want to talk a little bit about how you're influencing the green jobs space Mm -hmm. from a business perspective. I would say we're influencing it because I learned a lot of this actually through other TikTokers and influencers. Like, there's a lot of content creators who will start their own skincare lines or clothing lines, right? There's something around trust and validity of the brand that's associated with said content creator. That's why a lot of these content creators are thinking about what is their long-term plans as a business that goes beyond just being a content creator, right? And for me, it kind of fell into my lap that this would become my other business. Like I said, as I was mentioning, like it was all very organic. It didn't start off as like, oh, this is going to become like this extra business that I could build a career with. It just happened. But because of like the validity and like the community I built through Brown Girl Green and the trust that I built with my beautiful community I have online, people trust when there was companies and organizations that like I thought were really cool because they know that I, as a content creator, would only want to accept X type of brands or companies to post with us. Like, for instance, we decided very early on there would not be any unpaid internships, right? Thank God. Thank you. Like, at a baseline, that was like, from the get-go, even before anything else, I was like, no unpaid internships. We're not supporting that on the content. But you'll find other job boards and places not to throw shade on them, but like a little shade, like they'll post unpaid internships, they'll post things like this for exposure and experience. And sure, maybe there's a time and place for that. But like for us, we just don't really want to like endorse that as like a company or a brand unless like, you know, maybe it's in some forums or we sometimes include some on like resource hubs if people like want to check out those resources, like we'll share that, but it's not like a formally endorsed thing on our feed. When you're approached by a company that does not have a job that aligns with your values yeah. as the Green Jobs Board, do you go back to them and just simply say, no, we're not going to post this? Or do you give an explanation yeah. and kind of encourage that discussion around diversity, inclusion, yeah. equitable pay? You know, that's going to be an ongoing conversation that I think is going to keep happening as we expand. But like from the very beginning outset, there was a fossil fuel company that wanted to post with us and they called it like natural resources, something, blah, 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 right? I flagged it right away. My team flagged it right away. And we were like, uh, like, what is this about? And I didn't really have the energy to have to explain to them. So, like, they were just like a no. Like, it was just like, I don't think this is going to work, all these things. If it's a company that's a bit more like, okay, like, you're not obviously a greenwasher, obviously, like, whatever, but we don't 100% know what you're about when it comes to equity or environmentalism. That's something we're going to have to build out over time. Like, there's not really a blueprint on measuring even greenwashing to some extent. And I'm sure you've talked about this on your show. Now, like, even as a sustainability advocate, there's the very obvious ones, but then there's these gray area ones, right? Where it's like, if they're trying and they're creating a sustainability department, if they had those methods of accountability to address maybe either harms they've done in the past or preventative measures to make sure it doesn't happen in the future, maybe there's wiggle room if, you know, it's a case-by-case basis of like, okay, why are you building this department? What is this going to look like? But so far, there hasn't been any organizations or companies where it's been a major like, well, we need to have a deeper conversation. I We've been really lucky with that. But I know as we scale and get bigger, it's going to be a conversation. And we're not going to always get it right. We're not going to get it perfectly. And I, I'm never going to say like, we have the best vetting system of all things ever. But we're at least trying. We're even creating a vetting system that doesn't even exist right now when it comes to this space. So I would say like, we're trying. It's not going to be perfect. And luckily, like, I have a support system. Folks in the environmental justice space and the climate tech space that, like, want to see my vision through. And, yeah, I think there's definitely going to be modes of accountability on all ends as time goes on. But it's not going to be easy. It's not an easy undertaking. And I think the transparency of it all and making sure that it's an ongoing conversation where the onus is put on employers, not on job seekers, I think is really important. We're a small team of six. We are currently funding ourselves as a business. We have not taken any VC funding or any like funding of that sort yet. You know what I mean? And so with that being said, we have very limited resources to have like a really extensive 
vetting system when right. even these big mainstream career platforms don't even have that, right? So I think it's also like we're less than a year old. We want people to be really realistic about like what we're trying to build. But I want people to know that like it's in my head and like I'm always thinking about it because I come from such an activist background and an advocate background that I'm like always thinking about how we can always do better on that. I want to dive a little deeper on the workforce development aspect of all of this work. Being in the middle, seeing what companies are looking for and seeing what job seekers are coming to you with in the careers that they're looking for on your board. What is the skill that is most in demand right now in the green job workforce? Oh, that's a great question. I would say that, like, honestly, like, the things that I've noticed that have expanded is people are looking for a lot more, like, software developers. They're looking for, like, researchers and analysts, like, people who can actually, like, read data and, like, do report building. There's not enough, like, great comprehensive data in the climate space. And if there is, it's not really well communicated. And so that's definitely a huge need. I would also say with like development, people who are just like fundraising and learning how to like build up funds. That's just such an important skill to just have in the climate space, mostly because there is a lack of resources and it's not always like the most well-funded organizations. So being able to provide a skill set around development and fundraising is going to be like invaluable moving forward for sure. Wow. Okay. And then switching gears a little bit, when we talk about moving forward, what do you see as the greatest opportunities in the workforce development space? Where are there gaps currently? Where should we be looking forward to? The passage of the Inflation Reduction Act that just happened, which is, you know, imperfect in a lot of ways, but something that was amazing that came out of it was this thought of, you know, millions of jobs being created to build renewable energy. And, you know, a big part of that conversation is who's going to fill those jobs to be able to build that infrastructure, right? And so something that we're thinking about is how do you work with community partnerships on the ground to be able to do workforce development to support the filling of clean energy jobs on a local scale. That's a big conversation that's going to come up this year, the next 10 years, because this passage of all this money in these jobs is great, but it's like, how are you going to fill that? How are you going to build the infrastructure and make sure that people are getting the skill development to be able to fill those roles is something that we're going to see more difficult conversations happening because a lot of people who work these really great union jobs work for, you know, these fossil fuel companies. How are you going to convince them that these jobs are good paying jobs also get them into those rooms and also build long term careers with that? That's a really big conversation when it comes to actually creating this just energy transition for the climate crisis is making sure that communities don't get left behind that there's actually like benefits and long-term career pathways the same way that the fossil fuel industry in some ways has created that for a lot of communities if we're wanting to shift away from that we have to create the actual like pathways programming education and support to make that happen right so that's top of mind for me is like that conversation where you don't need to be this elite academic, you know, have this high level college degree, you can have a trade, you can work in a union and have a good paying like long term career. Those are things that really excite me about the green job space moving forward. That I think is a difficult question that's going to require a lot of discussion and willpower and thoughtfulness um, to get done in the right way. Something you mentioned that I want to talk a little bit more about is that community aspect. You mentioned the idea of local jobs. And I think that's really, really important here because when we're even looking at the parallel of the fossil fuel industry, why is it that we can call certain towns coal towns or certain communities coal communities? All of that work is localized in that area. The the families have lived there forever. It's generational involvement in this industry. Mm -hmm. So, of course, there's a sense of pride in those communities for the fossil fuel industry. They've really... Uh, associated their identities with this work. Yeah. And when we think about applying similar practices to the green job space, I think a lot of folks don't realize that there's so much opportunity to get involved locally in the green job space. So we live in a very virtual world now, but also a lot of the money that you alluded to from the Inflation Reduction Act is going to local governments. And there's never been more opportunity for young people, especially to get involved in Mm -hmm. local government. So I also am really curious to see how these next few years look like 
for the youth workforce yeah. and getting more folks into jobs that historically we've associated with frankly, much older people. Yes, 100%. I mean, I think getting young people in the room, like that's the biggest thing that we're trying to do with Green Jobs Board, right? Is like to do a day in the life. Like, you know, we see all the get ready with me videos, but it's like, do you see that for like an electrician or someone who's like working in a lab? Like, and we got to be real about it. Like, these jobs sometimes don't pay well. These organizations can be racist. Sometimes when it comes to talking about climate, it can be really debilitating and you can burn out. You know, there's a lot of these aspects of like being in a green job that might not be the most appealing when you really actually get into it, right? You don't fully know what the full job entails. It's like you just want to work a job that makes a difference. Beautiful. We love that. But it's like, what is the support system when you actually get into that job and it wasn't what you actually thought it was? It wasn't what it looks like. And maybe you want to pivot. You want to go somewhere else. How are we creating pathways and conversations for people to explore different options? There has to be visibility. There has to be resources and education to give that visibility. And for me, that's exactly why I'm very excited about Green Jobsware because we're thinking about those things, creating content to pan out different possibilities. There's all these different scenarios and extrapolations of like the career pathways you can take in this space and I think that a lot of people think you're limited it's like I just have to work in a field and hold a magnifying glass or I'm just like never gonna get paid and have to work this like dead-end job just because I'm trying to make a difference and like there's so many avenues that like haven't even been explored yet and so many emergent industries like I said when it comes to the concept of climate tech when it comes to I guess you didn't ask this yet but the emerging green jobs fields I'm seeing in the next couple of years is this concept of climate tech, building technology to actually address decarbonization. We're going to see more things around data tracking and data analysis to help people with like using technology to track daily, you know, environmental actions, things like that. Being able to see more research on like a higher diplomacy level because the UN climate talks aren't accomplishing what we need to when it comes to climate change. All these different things. We're going to see so many things open up because there's more incentive for more industries to get involved. And I think Green Jobs Board aims to like have that in one nice bundle of content and information that's going to keep expanding so that way people can plug in wherever they're at. When we talk about people plugging in wherever they're at, we spoke a little bit about the youth workforce. And now I want to expand this conversation because very often when we talk about diversifying the (laughs) workforce, whether that's in the green job space or anywhere else, We talk about the youth workforce, and then very often that's paired with a more diverse staff. That's true. Then when you take that one step further, when we look at company values, when... Leadership. (laughs) Leadership, when a lot of large companies start to think about sustainability, for whatever reason, it's very often also paired with a new DEI strategy. (laughs) So there's this very interesting cross-section of sustainability work and diversity, equity, and inclusion work that we very often allude to in the content creator space where we want more BIPOC representation in a lot of these industries. But when you're talking about major companies, when we're talking about like S&P 500 companies, where does that onus fall? Who is responsible for not just getting more youth into the workforce, but also involving that DEI strategy? And how do we make sure that DEI strategy doesn't fall on the youth? It's not like some unpaid intern's job to come up with an inclusion plan. So I know that's a really loaded question, but there's this huge, again, cross-section of both youth and diversity that companies think that they're achieving with two two birds. I don't want to say two birds, one stone. Feeding two birds with one mango. Or scone. Feeding two (laughs) birds with one scone. Yeah, I mean, that's a big question. But I would say, how do I approach it? I would say, like, a big thing is that, like, young people are experts. I mean, there's Gen Z consultants these days corporations are paying tons of money to like have these young people come in and consult when it comes to how do you do marketing and messaging of course it's because they want to reach consumers and it's their bottom line right they're trying to market those things it should be viewed the same way when it comes to sustainability and dei I have met with corporations that are pretty big and they have brought me in as a sustainability expert right And that's been exciting because it's like you're not just viewing me as like a young person who's like nice to put on a panel or whatever. And we talk to you for one day and we're like youth are the future, but we're also destroying the planet. You know what I mean? It's like, no, you actually bring us in as experts and you're open and receptive. That's not just checking a box. You have to actually listen to us and create avenues of accountability. And if you're not, we have every right to call you out on it. 
I think we live in an area where maybe companies are kind of scared because they're like, oh, if I make that commitment, then if I don't do that right, I'm going to be canceled on the internet, whatever. And then they won't get anything done right. So we're also seeing that opposite end of the spectrum, right? Where it's like young people have created such an amazing energy of accountability, but it's almost made companies like scared almost to enter that space. But at the same time, it's like companies need to be scared because it's like, if not, you're going to lose that consumer base and you deserve to lose it because you're not following the values of the people you're trying to sell to or trying to like whatever, pawn whatever off to. I think young people are seeing a lot more through greenwashing, which is exciting. And they're seeing a lot more through diversity washing as well or woke washing, as they call it. And so I think it's one of those things where young people have the ability to go into those rooms and demand that they're treated as experts and corporations need to understand that if they don't, they're going to get left behind. Companies that are going to succeed and do well in this next century are going to be the ones that are actually committed to that because I personally believe in young people way more than anyone else. That like young people are changing the tide, right? And so it's like companies, if they don't do that, they're going to be obsolete. They're going to become the next like dead end thing where it's like, oh, you're just now caring about sustainability? This company was doing that five, ten years ago, right? That's my hope. And I think young people are creating the culture around that, which excites me. So I think in terms of onus, like, I just want to tell companies that choose not to do that, you're going to be left behind inevitably because there is such a wave and demand for these kind of things. And people are going to be able to understand if it's lip service or not. So do it. Gen Z gaining buying power is what is changing the tide, which is both fortunate and unfortunate. There's an economic incentive for companies to commit to sustainability and also to commit to the youth workforce and to commit to DEI. And the other interesting thing is how we're seeing this play out in the product space. So we spoke earlier about EVs and there's never been more EVs on the road. And is it because the government and (laughs) companies and big car companies like truly believe in electric vehicles? Not really. It's because the consumers are really invested in them emotionally. And we're seeing more and more companies kind of get on board with that, whether or not they believe it. And I always give the example of like the electric Ford F-150. Is it that the F-150 driver is like really dying for an (laughs) EV? Not really. It's how they market it. It's all in like this resilience marketing of how EVs can power your home. And it's so like rooted in machismo. But, (laughs) But ultimately, like it's about what products are going to sell. And right. right now it's sustainability products and it's companies that are like genuinely committed and being transparent about right. their goals. I think the transparency is the biggest aspect of this movement that Gen Z is really looking out for because you can tell when yeah. someone's making it. Yeah, I definitely think so. Like I said, it gets complicated when like you go a lot deeper into the roots of knowing like, is that greenwashing? Is that not? Like I said, there's like those really obvious ones. And then I think what we're all trying to do is build a language to understand, like, how do we create those mechanisms of accountability across the board as young people? And I think it's exciting because, like, we're all trying to figure it out right now. I feel like. It is exciting. And I feel like the other aspect of these young people gaining buying power and then also being seen as a valued part of the workforce is that even within companies, we have so much more power as individuals. Like, and not that I've explored every single major company's right. hierarchy, but the hierarchy waters down a little bit when you're allowing young people to have a voice in the room, yeah, right? Exactly. And what is the value in that? And what is the value in having more young BIPOC individuals yeah. on your team? Like all of that ends up helping level out the playing field for everyone ultimately. Totally. I mean, I think. The thing like you were saying earlier is like it's nice to have young people in these incubators and these programs. But again, it's like if you're not building clearer pathways towards like leadership or them being treated as experts, it is tokenization. And we have to call it out as that, that it's like great you're bringing people into the room. But do they actually have the agency and decision making power to actually change the structure inside of those institutions? Usually not. Usually not. And I'm definitely not someone who's like climb up the ladder. I don't I don't buy into that rhetoric. And I think some people are into that. That's fine. If that's you, I'm not really about that. I'm about how are you creating collective power and making sure that the person that is at the quote unquote bottom almost not has the same maybe has the same level of power, but it's almost like is in the same rooms as the person at the top, right? Is like there is that collective conversation. We have to rethink the structure of work, period, which goes into a whole other thing. But I think it's important to talk about because, like, 
when it comes to sustainability, if we're like, okay, we care about the planet, all these things, but like ultimately you're at the bottom. Ultimately, you're getting exploited. Like that's part of the problem when it comes to talking about these things. You can build a whole sustainable product, sustainable, but that's like okay. But what about your supply chain? What about the people who made that item? All these things we don't talk about them. You know what I mean? So it's really complicated. But I think it's just one of those things where we have to start creating those conversations of transparency, and we have to make sure that if we do bring young people in to these spaces, that the CEO or whoever is at the front of the company is thinking about how am I making sure I'm building that leadership of that person, of that young person, because I'm going to be out like out of life, out of this job, eventually all these things. And you'll see like, you'll see on a website, I see this time and time again, because I also do diversity and equity consulting um, of my many hats. You'll always see on the website, you'll see these incubator programs or maybe like mid-level management. It's so brown. It's so melanated. It's beautiful. Then you go to like funders, leadership, the board of directors, not a not an ounce of brown or black or whatever there. It's so white. It's so milk. You know what I mean? There's one woman. In There's it. one woman, usually a white woman. That's nice. But that, you know what I mean? And so it's like, we have to talk about that, though. It's like such a small percentage. I think it's like 4% of environmental f- philanthropic funding is going towards, you know, BIPOC-led orgs. Check out Green 2.0. I just want to plug that as a resource. Like, there's stats that currently show that only 25% of environmental NGOs, like, 25% of their staff is, like, BIPOC. And then when it comes to people who manage these philanthropies or these foundations, only 4% of that leadership are BIPOC. When it comes down to it, I'm always thinking about resources, funding, and power structures. And if that doesn't involve a young person or a person of color, like, talking about where those things are going, what are we really doing? We're just bringing people into the room, but we're not giving them any agency or power to do anything about it. And that really needs to change. I like that you mentioned collective power, and I want to dive a little bit deeper into the term collective power. And I have two immediate thoughts. When I think about collective power in action, I feel like a really great example of that is the increased discussion of salaries in the workforce, especially among women. And once we start normalizing salary discussions, there's a collective power in how individual women can negotiate for themselves. That's amazing. And then when we talk about collective power in the context of the youth and BIPOC inclusion space in the workforce, I'm going to make a huge generalization. But when I think of BIPOC communities, I immediately think of community-oriented cultural structures. Mm -hmm. So when we think about Black communities, immigrant communities, when you are in North America, when you are in a Western space and you are the other, it is very natural for you to want to associate yourselves with people like yourself right and so when you're increasing the diversity in a workforce and you're increasing the youth in a workforce you're also kind of letting in this culture of collective power you're letting in this culture of community of folks wanting other people like themselves to succeed yeah and that's also a massive threat to the power structure that exists within the western economy so it's not just about getting these folks in but you have to also realize that there's this cultural shift happening in a very emotional space as well. It's about wanting people like yourself to succeed. And when we talk about diversity from an economic perspective, that's also in a much larger conversation that (laughs) we can talk about another time. Uh. But you're also like restructuring finances. You're also redistributing wealth that a lot of these communities have never had. And all of that comes down to this Mm -hmm. Mm community-oriented aspect of the workforce. And how do we make sure that folks are connecting beyond... Their yep. individual climbing the ladder American dream. Mm-hmm. Nah, I mean you're getting it. I'm loving it. You're like connecting all the dots. That's exactly what that's that's what I'm thinking about. Like people need to find each other. Honestly, especially in this space, like I view it as like a lack of awareness, visibility, and education. I remember like I would join affinity groups. Like I'm Filipino. I'm Jewish. I'm mixed race. We don't need to get into all that. But I'm part of a lot of different communities, right? And I would try to do it by like cultural identity but honestly I didn't really feel included in a lot of those spaces I think you can bring a lot of people of color into one room but that doesn't necessarily mean like you're all gonna get along and your only thing you have in common is against you know not being being a person of color and like that's great but then it's like how do you build collective power in that I think it comes down to like values and lived experiences and being able to create the space to want to 
know that you all don't have to think the same. And I see this as an issue with a lot of people on the left and liberals and myself included. I struggle with this. If you don't agree with everything as, you know, one, two, three, four thing, like you're canceled, you're done, right? Like it's almost like you, you can't disagree on some of these things, on what those things look like. It's really important that like when we're talking about building collective power, we have to like identify how are we also creating diversity and inclusion in our own circles against these power structures, right? And I'm trying to, let me make sure that that's actually your question. No, absolutely. Is this going in the absolutely. right direction? Yeah. Okay, I just want to make sure. Because I think it's an important part. Like, we can say, okay, we're all in this together. We're all in the collective struggle as minorities, as people who maybe come, came from children of immigrants, trying to not necessarily just climb the ladder and then be like, bye, like, I made it. Um, goodbye. Like, there has to be this reciprocity. There has to be this cycle of mentorship and inclusivity and to identify like who we actually like and don't like (laughs) and like actually give our energy to it and values align. So that way it's authentic connections and relationship building. I see so many times, like sometimes in the job or the workspace, it can feel really transactional. And I know, especially for like, as a young woman of color, I used to have such bad scarcity mindset. I still struggle with it sometimes where it's like, I have to be the only in the room. I have to be that. And that's part of what you're talking about as part of the struggle where it's like, if you're in this corporate ladder climbing up, it's like you're like, I can be the only woman of color in the room. If I'm not, then like they're going to get the resources. I'm going to be left behind. But we have to understand that that's rooted in white supremacy. Like that's rooted in this idea that we are divided, that we don't have this power, that we are so different in ways that like we have to claw over each other. Um, but at the same time, we also have to address that like, we don't have to like necessarily like each other to do the work, if that makes sense. Yeah. But I we get have it. to provide the resources to connect with each other to give that support system. And then as we're building, we can map that out. We can map out who are the people that maybe we don't like, but we're building that collective power with, that collective struggle to give resources and be like, fight the power. You know what I mean? And then we go deeper. Then there's another layer of like, okay, I actually do like you. And you're, I trust you actually to like have conversations around salary negotiation. Cause like, again, that could also be people you don't necessarily like, but it's more likely the people you do like, cause they'll see your value and like you can talk about it. Then you go a little bit deeper with like allies, people who have access to the power distribution pathway, um, whether that be in leadership or whatever, who see your worth and can negotiate on your behalf. So let's say you go with these people that you're like trying to do that collective bargaining with and try to figure out what do you need? Then you talk to the ally who can advocate for you to make that happen. Then you talk to the leadership who may also be an ally, but may also be someone who like is in that position. And somewhere within all of that power structure, you're able to create this collective messaging that like we're watching, we're holding you accountable. And you have this like power map of everyone who's supporting you in getting X, Y, and Z thing done, whether that be a raise or that is holding leadership accountable right and so i think it's important to map out who are your allies who are your partners in crime your co-conspirators and also addressing who can you actually trust in this space and actually cultivating that more and going deeper and not being so caught in scarcity mindset believe that these people if you build trust they're going to be with you for life and if you think about things in reciprocity rather than scarcity you're going to see your whole career open up you're going to see your life open up because you're focused on abundance you're focused on creating things for everyone not just yourself and we really need more of that in this movement I'm so glad that we could verbally map out a power structure within (laughs) the workforce because I think that's really difficult to realize that it's not just you and your co-conspirator. It's not just like the two youth kids at the bottom of the ladder upset about leadership. No, no, no. There's a lot of other people involved that can help you progress in your professional development, in the workforce, whatever it may be. Something you touched on earlier, and I think this is a perfect pair to the conversation of co-conspirators and allies in the workplace is mentors. I want to talk a little bit about mentorship, the value of mentorship and how to find a mentor if you're looking for one. Right. Mentorship has been everything to me. I would not be sitting here if I didn't have mentors. Like I said, when I started Brown Girl Green, it's because it's not like I didn't have mentors, but like specifically in the career I wanted, which was at the time getting into diversity and inclusion consulting, actually. Um, Back then, I was like, well, if I can't find the mentors, I'm going to figure it out myself. And so I would say that mentors 
are so critical for you to succeed in no matter what you want to do in life, whether that be personal or professional. So I think it's really valuable for people to find a mentor by first starting off, why do you want a mentor? It's really important to have that intention in mind because there are some people who will be like, oh, I'm down to mentor everyone or anyone, right? But I would say for some mentors I've had, they've been like, okay, come to me with a clear why. Why are you seeking mentorship? And also like you as a mentee, like, what mentorship can you also give me as your mentor? And I think sometimes people don't realize that, that you're also mentoring your mentor as a mentee. Like, and again, it's supposed to be this, like, two-way relationship. A real mentorship relationship should not be one way where you're just like, okay, give me all the answers. Bye. Because, first of all, that's not going to actually cultivate your own personal and professional growth. B, it's going to feel really transactional to your mentor. And C, there is just not the ability for you to just, like, take up that space and be like, yeah, you know, you're my mentor, but actually I can teach you some things too. So I would say you need to change your mind that a mentorship relationship is a two-way street. That's first thing. Then when you figure out what is your why on why you want mentorship, then start thinking about your categories. For me, it was diversity and equity consulting. So I literally went on LinkedIn, typed in environmental or climate diversity and inclusion consultants. I also did it on Google and then found those people on LinkedIn. And I LinkedIn stalked. I high key like went and cold call messaged people on LinkedIn and I said, hey, can we have a conversation? I didn't straight up say be my mentor. Sometimes people are okay with that. But again, you maybe don't be so eager because there's no guarantee. It's kind of like dating. You know what I mean? You don't want to be too pushy because um, it is a relationship. So go and message, be like, can we have an initial 15 minute call intro? Let me introduce myself. And if you vibe and you like each other, it's just like dating, right? You can build that and then eventually be like, you know, I'm really learning a lot from you. Would like you be okay with like having a more formal mentorship relationship to where then you can establish a cadence. Let's, can you mentor me once a month, every other week, once a quarter? You can lay that out transparently and figure out what is the best way to communicate how often can I talk to you it's honestly a relationship right and at the same time you can ask questions and then you should encourage your mentor to also ask you questions you know what I mean so I think those are all my tips in terms of navigating mentorship it's just about putting yourself out there and it's not always going to be perfect and not everyone is meant to be your mentor but like anything else in life once you find the right people it's great and the last piece I wanted to say is you can have mentors for all different aspects of your life Do not think one mentor is your catch-all, be-all for everything. That's unrealistic. Also in romantic relationships, don't do that there either. But specifically in mentorship relationships, I think it's really important that you're like, okay, this is my mentor for maybe building a consulting business. This is my mentor. Maybe, you know, you're probably going to be my mentor in terms of like, podcasting right or you know I'll have a mentor in terms of like business development mentor for public speaking whatever I identify the strengths and the talents in each of those people and I mostly focus on that getting mentorship on that specific maybe piece rather than expecting that one person to be my my everything so that's just my last piece of advice try to diversify who your mentors are because that'll also enrich those different categories of your life anyways I think starting off slow with the LinkedIn stalking and reaching out (laughs) is a great tip. I got into the habit when I was in school of scheduling informational interviews. Oh, I love that. With people I just admired, with people that I found on LinkedIn that had jobs that I wanted. And people love to talk about themselves. They do. Yeah, they really do. Even if you're like, can I have a 15 minute Zoom? That person could talk to you for longer about their job and how they got there and their life. And the other thing that you mentioned that's really important is that a mentorship is a lot like dating. And people say this a lot about therapists, that not yes, every therapist is for every... concept. Yeah, not every therapist is for every person. Not every mentor is going to be right for you. Right. So even if you find someone that you just really want their job, that doesn't necessarily mean that your pathway to get there or the right. mentorship that you need to get there is going to be through that person. Yes, exactly. I do this exercise with people when they're trying to figure out what kind of green job they want. You know, I do climate career coaching. You can check that out. But I would say, like, you know, the tip I always give to people is figure out, like, what brings you joy? What are your talents? What is the work that is being done in your field that you want to tap into? And somewhere within that, you're going to start creating that laundry list of the people you would want to connect with. And then... Based on that, you can ask them, what is your day in the life of this work? And maybe someone who you thought was like going to be your mentor or like the person you put on this pedestal, you actually meet them and you're like, actually, that's not what I want, right? So I, I just wanted to include that as well. I appreciate that. I really do. 
And the the last thing that I want to speak to you about, like as a bucket of conversation. Yeah. You mentioned mentors, you mentioned allies, folks that really want you to succeed. Yeah. And then we also talked about community earlier and yeah. our backgrounds. And I want to talk to you a little bit about perhaps the perception of your family and this content creation space, because this is a very, if you're okay talking about yeah. it. But I something, love talking about that. Yeah. Something about content creation is a little taboo. It feels it insecure is. to an older generation. It feels like you're kind of foregoing what you went to college for yes. perhaps sometimes. Oh, 100%. So I want to talk a little bit about how you really feel secure in this career, mm-hmm. whether it is through Brown Girl Green, through the Green Jobs mm-hmm. Board, in these businesses that you're creating through an online platform. Yeah. How do you sustain that um, that energy when it comes to your community. Yeah, totally. I mean, like I said, I don't come from a family of quote-unquote environmentalists, even though they are environmentalists in their own way. They just don't label themselves as that because, you know, they live sustainably, how to figure it out, all these things. But I would say that, like, for a long time, my family didn't understand what I did, and it's not like they weren't supportive. Like, I grew up in a pretty supportive household. It was just more, like, constantly worried, Right. Constantly like, uh, this doesn't really make sense. This isn't a traditional job path. You know, my sister's a doctor. God love her, you know. But, you know, she checked the boxes of, you know, traditional job path, right? Whereas I was like, I'm just going to build my own job. So for me, like, I've been my own boss for, what, almost two years now. Or like, Congratulations. Which was really amazing. But it was a journey. It was a journey, and it was a lot of ups and downs. It was not pretty. It's still not, like perfect right I'm still like on the uphill battle though like continue you know creating that security for myself all the time as a creative but I'm grateful that like when I was younger I kind of it's not like I knew I would be here right but I kind of knew I would be here at the same time so I was already building so many relationships and intentional relationships and community with people at a very young age to where those relationships from when I was like 18 19 20 years old that like it wasn't like oh that's gonna give me a job right or whatever those relationships to this day like allowed me to have a career because it was about me planting the seeds of intentionality and relationship building and now it's blossomed into this thing to where like I do have more job security because I worked really hard to build really intentional relationships for people that believe in the work that I'm doing. And those are really critical tools for success when it comes to entrepreneurship is like, if you're going to build your own thing, then like, if you're maybe not an expert of like going into academia, right? Like how we would think we would if we had an environmental degree, then where are you building your expertise? Where are you building these this boat for yourself, this safety net? And for me, that was through relationships. For me, it was about building trust and relationships and intentional pathway for myself to be able to diversify my income, be able to you know, work with an amazing management agency, all these things. And they all became emergent because I was always thinking about how was I building? How was I building? But that doesn't mean it wasn't exhausting. That doesn't mean it was easy. And I want people to know that it's not for everyone. Like what I do is not for everyone. But I know I'm in the perfect position because of everything I've built previously in my life to be doing what I'm doing and to be able to have it be my full-time job. And so I'd say my family for a long time didn't get it. And then I got featured in the New York Times last March, and I just remember my mom, it it just felt like such different energy, where it was like, my mom was like, whoa, I guess you're doing something. Yeah. Because they'd be like, uh, how do you, like, pay for your apartment and stuff? I'm like, uh, I have, like, a job? Like, I don't understand. So it was just funny, like, when I got featured in New York Times, and then also I got invited to the White House in September to do content, and, like, both the White House and New York Times in a weird way it was like these like mainstream it was like the Gucci or the Louis Vuitton in terms of public policy spaces or something <laughs> I don't really get it but like my mom or my family I think in this past year were like okay you're kind of legit like we kind of see you like that's cool it took time and and now my family's like very much like yeah go for it like you're building this company like this is this is dope but again like If I had relied so heavily on my family's validation, which I used to, in terms of my career path, I probably wouldn't be doing this right now. Uh, There are so many times where I would have breakdowns that I'd be crying because it was like no one understood me and I felt like, yeah, maybe this isn't the right 
thing to do. And there is still those voices. There's still that insecurity sometimes. But I think as I keep building and trusting my path and trusting what I know my purpose is in life on like why I'm on this planet to be working on these things. When you're really clear on your purpose, things just kind of align. Things kind of fall into your lap if you build those intentional relationships and have that intention and keep focusing on that. And I'm living proof of that. Like, I just am. So I think for me, I I just give people that advice. Even if you're working a nine-to-five, if you're an entrepreneur, whatever, your job is not your life. Your job is not your life. Your job can't be your life. Even if you're so passionate about all this stuff, which I am, I live, breathe, sleep, eat it, whatever, right? I learned at a young age, maybe like two or three years ago, when I burnt out really bad from this stuff, your job ultimately cannot be your life. You have to have something separate. But with that being said... It's about living your life with intentionality and being clear on your vision of the life you want to live, both from a personal standpoint and a professional standpoint. And you can't listen to your mom, your dad, your sister, your boyfriend, your partner, whatever. It has to be up to you because if you listen to all this outside influence on your career or whatever, you're going to have that midlife crisis in a couple decades from now you're like whoa I live my life to please other people, not myself. So no matter what you choose to do, just do things for you and your community and be intentional and you can find the balance between the both if if you're clear with yourself and actually take the time to analyze and reflect on that. Christy, I think that's like a really fabulous note to end off on. Yeah. That's really powerful. Can I quickly ask, you said you've been doing Brown Girl Green and yeah. Green Jobs Award for two years. Yes. What were you doing before that? Yeah. Oh, a little spicy. No, no, it's good. When I finished university, I was working in a climate nonprofit. And I was doing, I was in a nine to five job, which is interesting. So I was working a nine to five job and building Brown Girl Green on the side every evening. And then over time, like, Basically, it was crazy. It was like 2019. So my first job at college, I was there for like a year and a half. The organization um, laid me and a ton of other people off. Um, We don't even get into that. I got laid off. It was for my first job out of college. And I was like, "Um, what am I supposed to do? Posted on LinkedIn that I got laid off from my job. At this point, I was building Brown Girl Green. I was building my personal brand. So people knew what I was doing, right? And I posted on LinkedIn and my professor that I had an undergrad at UC Berkeley was like, do you want to come be an assistant lecturer with me at the Haas School of Business? And I was like, wait, but I don't have a master's degree. Like, what do you mean? He's like, it doesn't matter. Like, you've built this amazing brand and media page and all of these things. Come teach. And the class was on social media and social change, how to do social media to drive impact for nonprofits. And I was like, are you sure? And he's like, yeah, like you're in. So I got that through a LinkedIn post. Then I got hired to consult these this amazing solar company about how to do, you know, technical sales, giving them digital media strategy on how do you actually scale up renewable solar. Again, LinkedIn post, someone believed in me and I just got the job. There's the relationship, but again, there's all through relationships that I built. And I need to emphasize that. Like I didn't go through any application process. It was all relationships I built. Then After that, I was doing that. And then, what was it? During the pandemic, Brown Girl Green just exploded. So I was doing teaching and consulting and workshops and then also um, doing content. Then it blew up. Then I started getting content um, partnerships and all of these things with Brown Girl Green. And then, basically, I moved to the East Coast. What was this? A year and a half ago. Then the solar company, unfortunately, like I also had to leave that job. And then I was like, okay, I'm automatically freelance. I got to figure it out. And meanwhile, I was teaching. And then eventually, like, I had to quit teaching because I got so much work from Brown Girl Green when it became my full-time focus to where, yeah, I I love teaching. I loved consulting all these things. But then I was like, oh, wow, I'm a full-time content creator now. And, yeah, it's basically been that way for about the past year and a half. So, yeah, that's where I'm at in my career journey post-grad five years later. So, yeah. Wow. Very serendipitous. And I like that you emphasize like all of this comes from relationship building, really putting yourself out there and believing in other people, other people believing in you, this mindset of reciprocity. So beautiful way to end off. Thank you so much, Christy. This has been really great. No, thank you so much. And I just want to tell everyone out there that like imposter syndrome is real. And I think like worrying about, you know, I don't have X credential. I don't have 
X, Y, Z thing. It's like, just get started. Build that relationship with someone. Have that conversation. It can feel vulnerable and icky at first, but if you have that clear intention, it's not going to come off as transactional. It's going to come off as, wow, you're courageous. You're brave to actually explore the life and the career you want to build, and we need you in the climate movement to be authentic, to be in your joy, to do the work that needs to get done, and I really encourage you to, to follow that journey. I believe in every single one of you listening right now. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Christy. This has been great. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's conversation with Christy Drutman. In the show notes, I will have my social links, but also Christy's social links so you can check out Brown Girl Green and the Green Jobs Board. Lots of resources. I look forward to chatting with you on social, hearing what you thought of the episode, and I look forward to seeing you next week. Have a good one. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.